Hello everyone, it's Thursday the 17th of June and welcome to episode 60 of the Kite Podcast with me, Will Evans. And me, Ben Eagle. Today, we're talking genetics. Um, in Kite's Dairy 2030 document, Kite made it clear that genetics is likely to play a significant role when it comes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions in dairy. But what's the likely return on investment, um, the impact on herd health, and why should you be considering getting to work on the genetics of your herd sooner rather than later? Well, to discuss all this, we're joined by Mark Roach, who is Managing Director of Grosvenor Farms and also Chairman of Cogent Breeding Limited. Uh, we're also joined by Kite's Managing Partner, David Levick, and as always, by everybody's favourite Derek Market Analyst, Chris Walkland. Chris, it's over to you for the Milk Market Report. First of all, as usual, where are you this week? Well, I'm bringing you my report from the only place that matters this week, from outside Wembley Stadium, where England will be playing Scotland tomorrow in a real football tournament for the first time since I don't know when. <laughs> and congrats to the Welsh, Will. But I'm making no predictions about tomorrow's match, having had indigestion from truly terrible Welsh humble pie with a rugby. I'm not risking having a good porridge pie. Some of my best Scottish mates live in Scotland and I've no intention of alienating them. Happily, I've no qualms in asking our two guests to estrange their friends and colleagues. So a prediction, please, gentlemen. By how many tens of goals will England beat the old enemy tomorrow? <laughs> Mr. Mark, what do you say, especially with Grosvenor having a Scottish interest in colleagues? Well, as a Welshman and married <laughs> to a Scottish wife, <laughs> um, and wanting all three home nations to go through, I think it would be in everyone's interest if Scotland beat England tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's the wrong answer. That's the wrong answer today. Mr. David, what about you? Well, how do you follow that one? Um, uh, I'm going to go straight down the middle here and say I think it'll be a draw uh, and go to Very penalty. diplomatic. And, yeah, and then England will just score. <laughs> anyway let's hope there's another Gaza 96 mega goal for the English and an Archie Gemmell 78 special for the Muck Scots if you're too young to remember them look them up anyway to the podcast the value of having the very best genetics and being discussed by would you get this two people whose names seem to have originated in France. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Before that, to the markets. And after a very good upward run, it's looking as worrying as a Welshman in the last half hour of last night's match. <laughs> the GDT index for the first June auction was down yet again, uh, and the second one too. Nevertheless, it's still five drops in a row and six drops since this podcast did an episode on the GDT saying how fantastic it was. I don't know who had that idea, but I'd fire them immediately. <laughs> well, Chris, that might have been you. <laughs> well, I'll teach you to listen to me then. <laughs> the negative mood from this, though, is clearly contagious on the EU markets this week. There was only one positive price move, and that was Dutch whole milk powder. 
All three SMP contracts, French, German, Dutch, tripped up in the box and fell. And Dutch has done that for two consecutive weeks. We have to go back as far as November to see that, uh, the last time that happened, and as far back as August to see all three of them dropping. Dutch and German, butter also cried foul. They dropped by 100 euros and 70 euros respectively significant drops and all of the slow and steady gains of may and june have been wiped away um as i muted last week it does look as if the market has topped out for now at least and i think we can see buyers sitting on their hands and doing even less buying than they have been doing a sure why a sure fire way for further drops on the basis of those prices, AMPI returns are tracking just below 30p again after transport and a processor margin. It's not great on the futures either. EU butter futures are down. SMP futures are down too. New Zealand one's about the same. And here Farmgate returns and the equivalent from the futures are holding on just by their fingertips above 30p. In the UK, cream and spot milk look pretty stable with a few loads of cream going for the right side of £1.50 a kilo delivered on the mainland. So that's much better than it was. But spot milk is a little bit lacklustre at 24 to 25p currently, I hear. So slip back a bit, but that can change very quickly. Cheese will be the same in the UK. And on the positive side, I've seen some encouraging quarter three prices for EU young cheeses at over €3,000. That's higher than current ones. So good news if it holds. So that's it from me. I'll be counting down the hours now until tomorrow's <coughs> match. May the best team win on the day. I lie. <laughs> now it's over to Monsieur Roach and Levique for the discussion. <laughs> De la genetique. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Um, right, let's let's turn to our main subject. We're, we're going to be starting by actually linking genetics and, and climate. Um, let's go in straight away with a big question. Um, what is the value of genetics in helping us to meet climate targets and, and why it's in, why is it important to consider? David, can we start with you? Sure, it's a brilliant question, Ben. Um, and there's some great answers too. Um, the really fabulous thing about this is that everyone's actually a winner. You know, whatever breed we've got, whatever system we've got, underlying all of those things is, a, is, an, is genetics. And we can embrace that and improve efficiency all the way. And that's what carbon is all about. That's what the environmental targets are all about, is improving efficiency and reducing waste. But I think when we when we look at this, there's two main areas. One is we can breed for more performance. We can breed for better health traits. We can make our cows last longer. And these all produce far more efficiency in the system. But the other area, which is an incredible development, is about feed conversion efficiency. Uh, and I know a few weeks ago you had Marco from AHDB on, on the call and Marco was uh, 
justifiably very excited about the release of their EnviroCow um, index that's coming through. Um, it's, it's a great development, and it's based on a lot of work that's been done at the Scottish colleges with the Langhill herd over decades of, of time. Um, and in conjunction with that, we've got ST Genetics in the US that have invested millions into doing similar investigative work on feed conversion efficiency. And, it, and we're in the early stages of the lactation cows uh, on that project, but the results are just staggering. And it's, so it's all about getting that improved performance with less dry matter intake. We reduce the dry matter intake we reduce the methane emissions. We reduce carbon dioxide scores from uh, from buying in food, and we we ultimately dramatically reduce the uh, the carbon footprint of those liters. So it's a win win all the way around here, and we're and we're starting to make some really fantastic progress. Hmm. Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Um, same question yeah. to you. Why is genetics important when it comes to the climate? Yeah, um, before I say anything, I just want to say to Chris that the only connection I have with France is a holiday in Brittany in, uh, in 1996. <laughs> <laughs> Coming on to the question, um, yeah, climate change. I mean, I've been in this industry 40 years. And, and the biggest um, you know, item on consumers' agenda, and for that matter, anti-animal activists has been animal health and welfare. But just over this last year or so, I think the climate change agenda has moved right up to the top of their list. And I suspect going forward, the number one concern amongst consumers will be climate change. And we've seen that this week um, at the G7 with COVID, the main point of discussion. So this um, you know, climate change isn't going to go away. It's going to be more important than ever going forward. Uh, and as we know, the industry has come under quite a lot of pressure recently with activists using climate change as a Trojan horse uh, to further their agendas, um, eat less meat, eat less dairy, save the planet. Whereas actually um, dairy could be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And I agree with David entirely here. This is a win-win. Um, you know, on our own farm, we've reduced our carbon footprint by 30% since 2014. Uh, we're over a kilo of CO2 equivalent per fat corrected litre of milk uh, five, six years ago. We're now down to 0.79. And uh, most of that gain has come from productivity. So it is about better genetics. It is about better management, better nutrition. It's about handling manures more efficiently. It's using more of the resources on farm using less artificial fertilizers uh so yeah i agree totally this is uh, you know a win-win the more efficient and productive and competitive our businesses are then the lower the carbon footprint and genetics has a huge part to play in that as it touches everything we do when working with the animals mm-hmm. okay. can i just ask a follow-up question to that before mark moves on mark do, what role do you think having a mixed farming system plays in being able to achieve that um, carbon score? Yeah, I think that is a big factor, actually. And if we look at our soil carbon levels, our soil carbon levels on our arable fields are double the national average. Mm. Uh, and that's because we've got a circular or regenerative farming system. So 
I think, you know, mixed farming is going to make quite a strong comeback. We're seeing animals now moving into arable areas. And I don't want to hear sayings like, you know, the world is four harvests away from Armageddon. Well, I don't see that here in the UK. It may be in the plains of Russia and, I don't know, America, but certainly not here where we, you know, mixed farming is a big part of the solution, I believe. Well, as, as a mixed farmer myself, it's nice to know I'll be back in fashion after all this time. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a first world. Oh, no, <laughs> maybe, maybe on the farm. <laughs> um, David, it might seem uh, a complicated one to measure directly, but what do you think is the likely return on investment when it comes to improving her genetics? Well, thanks, Will. That's uh, an easy question. Um, it doesn't come more complicated than that actually um but the short answer is it's huge Mm. right and uh ahdb um set out to try and quantify that uh, a couple of years ago and uh, and i looked up their figure and they actually said for every pound of investment in genetics there's a 90 times return nine zero wow so it's phenomenal and um, and when we look at some of the work that we've been doing with some of the groups we work with around the country, we see that uh, profitability is very, very closely linked to uh, improvements in genetics. And we also see that the carbon footprint uh, has a direct relationship there as well. So profitability goes up, carbon footprint goes down, as Mark's just intimated on their head. Brilliant result there. But the return on the genetics, it's a long-term thing, it's cumulative, uh, and uh, and the work that AHDB has done, I think, goes a long way towards convincing, should go a long way towards convincing every single dairy farmer not to scrimp on the cost of genetics. It's minimal. The actual input costs there are absolutely minimal compared to the long-term return. We won't get any better return in investment on the farm than investing in genetics. So, so how do you, or how do we change farmers' attitudes? I mean, I mean, those figures, you mentioned 90 times the return on a pound. How do you, you know, that figure speaks for itself. So how do you get that through to farmers when it comes to investing in genetics? Um, I think we've got to work on uh, examples of improvement from the very best down to the down to a normal farm and look at where those improvements can come and we've seen this over over the last 10-15 years where we've been concentrating on this right across the range of herds that we work with and every single herd that's prepared to make those right decisions uh, are seeing the benefits coming through we used to yeah, it's not that long ago. You know, we were looking at seven thousand, eight thousand liters as being a, a target to aim for. Mark will remember those from his his uh, previous consultancy days. Um, uh, you know, and those targets. Um, in them, you know, the odd person was doing ten thousand liters and, and really piling up the milk solids. You know, now it's it's we've we've gone through those targets. We've gone through the ten thousand liter barrier. 11,000 didn't stop. You know, the, the best are actually progressing at such a rate here. But even the best in our country are miles behind the best in the world. 
So we've got lots of potential at every single uh, level within the industry to make real progress. Mark, is that something, would you, would you agree with that? Is that something that you're seeing uh, at Grover Farms as well? Totally. Um, you know, the cost of genetics in terms of total cost of production is very, very low. On our own farm, I think our costs are somewhere about 0.25p a litre. 0.025p a litre, it works out about 30-ish pound cow. Um, that's less than 1% of our total cost of production. To put that in context, we spend about 1,500 pound a cow per annum on feed. So, you know, genetics is a very small part of the cost of production, but it has a huge impact. In our own, I'll just give you an example. In our own herd, we moved to a sexton beef strategy three years ago, which is sex semen on our best animals to produce uh, replacements and beef on the rest. So that works out roughly the top third of our herd gets bred to sex semen to produce females for the next generation. The next 70% get served to beef. The increase in value on beef calves alone from going to that strategy is worth a penny a litre. The fact that we can select the top 30% of, our, of, of the genetics in our herd to feed our replacements. In other words, you know, the selection intensity we can put in has dramatically increased. That's virtually doubled our genetic progress over the last three years. You know, I was saying here in our business that you know, low quality genetics is too expensive, high quality genetics is too cheap. David, what about technology? How's that going to help accelerate the pace of change? Um, what's available now and what is likely to be available before too long? Okay. okay. Um, I, I think there's three things here. Um, the, the first thing that everybody who milk records has access to this, and that's their herd genetic report. How do we move on if we don't really understand what we've got to begin with? So the herd genetic report is available through AHDB, and I know the uptake on, on that, the, the people accessing that is really low. So, so this is a message to the whole industry here that we can, we can learn so much from the information that's already there and guess what? The investment is zero because it's free, right? It's also recently been put on the NMR uh, pages on your Herd Companion and on the CIS website. So there's no excuse now for not accessing your Herd Genetic Report. The Herd Genetic Report uh, ranks you in relation to the rest of the country, and it really picks out the strengths and weaknesses in your herd so that you can focus your efforts on where you need to go. So it's a great start, but the massive breakthrough is genomic testing. And uh, uh, it's been available in the UK for females for several years now. Uh, and the price has just come down to low 20s per test. So coming back to this investment in genetics, to be able to spend 20 to 25 pounds on a, on a genomic test and understand exactly what you've got at birth, it just opens up the doorways incredibly. This is a, this is a real game changer. And it's something that every, uh, every single dairy farm should be able to implement. Interesting. 
Thank, thanks, David. Um, Mark, what savings, um, financial um, and carbon, um, could FCE improvements gain? Yeah, if I can just, like, I'll come to that in a second. If I can just pick up on, on where David finished off there the, and the technology piece, because I think that is important and it is fast moving. And the genomics and sex semen combination um, is very, very powerful. And like David said, we genomically test everything in our herd. And I've been surprised at the degree of variation that we've seen. And we now deselect, in a probably 30% of our heifer, we deselect and put to beef because they're just not good enough. They're not as good as some of the cows in our herd. So being able to identify those best genetics, genomics does, is really important. So genetics and sex semen technology is here now, and, and I think everybody should be using them. There's three new technologies coming up, which I think you know, are not very far away. Uh, one of them is male sexed beef semen. And I think you know, that's now on the market uh, and we're ramping up production in Cogent to you know, really push uh, um, male sex semen onto the market over this next year or so. So I see the industry very quickly moving to the point where no unsexed semen will actually be used. So if you want to breed your own replacements, you'll use sex female semen. And if you want, to, and the rest of the herd, which is up to 70% of your animals, will be served with male sex beef to produce male beef calves for the beef supply chain. And that will dramatically, I think, increase the efficiency in the beef supply chain. And I think farmers probably do now need to pay more attention to the quality of beef genetics. You know, the second thing I'd say is the purity rates of sex semen. The Sex Ultra 4M product, which Cogent markets, gives about 92% purity of sex. We're now marketing what we're calling Ultra, Ultra 4M HP semen, HP standing for higher purity. We think we can move up the purity of sex towards 96, 97%. Now that doesn't sound a lot, but that gives you more beef calves and higher selection intensity. We think that'll add an extra £10 a cow to, to the bottom line in most herds. But just coming on to what you were just saying, Ben, about feed efficiency, I think that is the last big missing piece of the jigsaw in terms of genetics, in bovine genetics. You know, pigs and poultry have been selecting for feed efficiency for decades, and they are now very, very efficient in converting feed into protein. And I think that's now coming strongly with, uh, with bovines. You know, Cogent's parent company, ST, has got the biggest database of feed efficiency anywhere in the world. We've put 5,000 animals now through the testing program. If you get a genomic test with Cogent, you will actually get a feed efficiency genomic index. And what we're finding is that the variation between the best and the worst is between 20 and 30%. So to put that into context, you know, I could have two cows in my herd, say, standing side by side, both giving 10,000 litres. One of those cows could be eating 25% less feed than the other. Now, if you monetize that, that works out, depending on feed costs, somewhere between two and three p per litre. It's absolutely enormous potential here to improve feed efficiency. And if you improve feed efficiency and you increase output or reduce input, you improve productivity, you reduce methane, you actually have a lower carbon footprint as well. So this piece around feed efficiency, we think is going to be 
become a big factor in the in the coming in the near future. It's 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 here now. Just need more data to really push that forward. It has been a hard sell to farmers, though the concept, hasn't it? I, I think Chris, once we get more data available, and um, you know, uh, I, I think that will improve the accuracy enormously. And uh, and when that and then, and then and then we get to a tipping point, and then it'll be right at the top of the list, along with some of the other traits that David mentioned earlier, when people are selecting bulls. I think that's particularly relevant, isn't it? If you think, you know, and picking up your point, Chris, about hard sell to farmers, I don't think it's unrealistic that we might end up in a position where milk pricing includes a bonus for the benefit of lower carbon milk production. So where you've spoken, Mark, about, you know, 0.7 is is phenomenal compared to industry average of 1.2. You know, we, we could see a premium on uh, the the gains that you've already made, and that sort of then accelerates the need to get started on this sooner rather than later, does it not? I think so. If you look at you know, competitive products of milk, Oakley put a carbon footprint on their on their packaging, and I wouldn't be surprised in, in years to come if, if all foods have a carbon sort of footprint attached to it, and um, the lower the better, obviously. So I, I think that's going to come come through and. Yeah, it's up to us to make sure that you know we can put. I think we can get our carbon footprint below what Oakley are currently quoting. Actually, so yeah, I think it is important, Becky. Okay, that's a good place to leave it. I think um, that's all we have time for. But a very big thank you to our guests today, Mark Roach, David Levick, and Chris Walkland. Yes, thank you very much for listening. Uh, next week, we're joined by George Healer. Um, so we'll be talking cheese next Friday. But for now, it's goodbye from all of us here.